Welcome back, everybody, to the Relief and Resource Co. and the Bar Talk podcast coming to you from Fenton, Michigan. Thank you very much for joining us. I am your host, John Foley, with uh, me as always, Courtney Booms. Hello there. Mark Miller. Hello, hello. Uh, thank you for joining us for our 25th episode. Woo! Which is pretty great. 25 For a year? Episodes. I'll take 25 episodes in a year. Yeah. And uh, thank you to iLogic Media Production Company. Please check out all of their wonderful content. Lots to look at there. Lots of different kinds of shows, different subject matter, etc. So today is the second in our uh, our cocktail greats uh, series. So we started this series uh, by looking at the the life and the works of David Wondrich, uh, cocktail writer for Esquire, author of a number of books. And we're going to jump in today with the second in this series, and we hope to do many of these uh, today with Jim Meehan, mm-hmm. who we'll get into how he kind of directly follows Wondrich, uh, both in, in his influence, his admitted influence, and also kind of in our in our current cocktail culture, because I think there is a, a direct line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, from what Wondrich did to what Meehan did to the, the culture that we're currently in, in terms of like a linear influence. Uh, but he is in more so even than Wondrich, he's known as a bartender and yeah. then an author. Yeah. Where Wondrich sometimes makes drinks and has recipe input and lots of philosophy on how drinks are built, but was an author first and a cocktail historian. And Meehan um it kind of went the opposite way. So I think a lot of people are are very fond of Meehan's work because they came to his work as a working bartender. Yeah. We'll get into a lot of that with your He's been behind the stick, you could say. Yeah, and well, he's very, that's his, he's very influential yeah. um, because of that. And his work is is very, very, very cool. And I'm really excited to talk about him because I really like Jim Meehan a lot. I have not met him. I'm sure he's a very nice person. But the work that he's done has has been a big influence. And, a, and I'm grateful for what he's put out into the world content-wise because it's really, really cool. Yeah. So, Courtney... Yes, John. What do you know about Jim Meehan? I really, I wanted to say first that I like the way that you phrased it because it makes it sound like they're kind of the yin to each other's yang as far I as think experience so. goes in the in the beginning at least. Well, I was going to mention this later, and I think I'll just mention it now because it's fresh in my mind. We could have easily done this chronologically, right? We could have gone back and started talking about Jerry Thomas and right. talked about other people like David Embry right. or or other people who kind of influenced early cocktail culture like gold and silver era of of american bartending but i think it's rather cool and appropriate for where we are right now that we started with wondrich and meehan even more so than starting with like aubrey sanders and dale de graff because i think those two Mm -hmm. have two i mean almost some of the biggest influence on what we do currently they were influenced by those other people that came before but this is what younger bartenders who were working out this is what they were reading what they were looking at exactly yeah i mean i i have it in my show notes too it's, as a man who once described himself as living in the shadow of david wondrich's great ideas i think he personally makes a wonderful sub- second subject sure our particular uh series here with ca- classic cocktail greats sure and if you're a 25 year old bartender you might certainly know Meehan, and by virtue of him wondrich and the cocktail codex from Death and Company, right. and not know who Gaz Regan is, for instance. 
That's true. Sure. You know. Maybe a little bit more singular. Yeah. Unless you're our server, Chase, who is obsessed. With <laughs> he is obsessed with Chase. Yes. We got to get him one of those finger spoons for her gift. Yeah. We really should. <laughs> but, for his but I think this is, there is a recency bias with it, with what you're influenced by. Yeah. So those books, the, the green me handbook and the, the death and co book, the first, the black one and the cocktail codex, those are two or three of the books that I find most of the younger bartenders I talk to have read or are reading. Yeah, maybe because of the way that it kind of lays out really clearly um, practice and technique right. and ingredient lists yeah. and why. And to my knowledge, Aubrey Sanders didn't really write a book. Yeah. And the Gaz Regan book is old and the Jerry Thomas stuff is all old and the fine art of mixing cocktails is old and the Japanese book is Japanese. So American, you know, bartenders haven't read it. These books are the most recent uh, timestamp of influence for younger bartenders. So they're a bit more accessible, you could say. Well, yeah, and I think they're the most urgent for us to talk about yeah. now, and then we can go back and do all that other cool yeah. shit. Later. It makes a lot of sense, too, because like anything that you're researching as time goes on, it gets kind of adapted to the modern era or yeah. whatever new techniques are learned now or whatever kind of efficiency is going on now. So it's more common for you to find maybe this Meehan Bartender's Manual over, like you were saying earlier, some of the stuff like Jerry yeah. Thomas or Harry Craddock's. Yeah, and most likely it was in somebody else's hand that you knew before it got to you. True. Mine's beaten to shit. And that's exactly because I took it from eBay. But yeah. Well, but you someone you else used, used it, it before I But used you've it. also used it I as a manual. Yeah. Like a working manual. Oh yeah. Yeah. In six years of working here, I've never actually purchased a, a cocktail book. Because we, well, unless, we unless it was less <laughs> like have my own copy, but reading them first originally. Well, we have purchased. some yeah, we we bought them all. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, try to maintain a library at least. The library. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Even if half the servers just come down and be like, oh, that's cool. You got a lot of books. Now you want to borrow one? Maybe later. <laughs> Intimidation. <laughs> Maybe later. Let's go to the pub. Yeah. Anyway. So Jim Meehan. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about. coastal influence. By coastal, ooh, yeah, that's an interesting. It does, right? Wow. Yeah. So I think they buy coastal influences because originally he's from the Chicago area. Meehan started out bartending as a freshman while taking classes at the University of Wisconsin Madison, excuse me, in 1995. So a legendary drinking school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a legendary drinking they can school. Get down. Almost as bad as Western. I no, mean, Western. no, 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 no. Don't, don't besmirch the Broncos. The, I think I think University of Madison actually has the per capita numbers to to, to back it to up out yeah. flex uh, you know they are a big 10 school we're a max school you just i don't know if we have the numbers fair fair maybe not well he was majoring on, in broncos we can do better <laughs> he's majoring in english literature and african-american studies when long islands and alabama slammers were the drink du jour at said uh university of wisconsin madison by 23 he knew he wanted to stay in the industry so it kind of does follow a similar pattern as um wonder just like we were saying before but instead of sticking into academics he decided to kind of well, he finished his degree, but he decided to go to New York, where his brother Peter had moved. Uh, he was working as a freelance food writer, and he was inspired by his numerous vi visits with his brother. Um, and the successes he found and decided he'd go ahead and try his hand at the big city as well. Um, he graduated in 2002 and moved there maybe just a few months, apparently after 9-11, when in interviews he had said that New York was kind of not dried up of tourism, but people, it was a little more solemn at the time. Sure, and so you yeah. found a lot less uh, going on than perhaps you would have. More, the, city the city was insular. The city the city was. Yeah. Had curved inwards. Curved into yeah. itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in New York, he did get his start at the Five Points on Great, Go Great Jones Street. 
uh, where they kind of specialize in $5 martinis using well vodka and boron puree. So it's just the brand of fruit puree du jour, kind of like oh. um, we might use Monin I syrup. I saw that. I, was like, yeah. I have no idea what like that. that is. <laughs> and Yeah. Uh, and so uh, for context, use the term martini extremely loosely yeah. right. in this particular <laughs> it's case. It's in a glass up with yeah. vodka and things. And things. Yeah. Yep and things uh so they specialized in those five dollar martinis and one dollar oysters so there was plenty of like overflow like plenty of plenty of people to be serving but it wasn't necessarily like the fine dining that he was looking in for and uh he took a brunch shift a brunch bartending shift because no one else wanted to um i'll say i've worked brunch bartending shifts before Ugh. and they suck balls i uh, hate it you have to Ugh. prep all the garnish you got to get like all your uh, rims ready for Bloody Mary style cocktails and just get ready for pouring bubbles and the, it's going to overflow every single friggin' time. So I And get, plus you're running brunch service. Yeah. Which means you deliver the food. Can I have a side of syrup? Yes. Can I have a Bloody Mary? Yes. Can I have a uh, bubble cocktail? Yes. Can I have a need side of ketchup? Yes. I don't need waffles. more butter. Yes. And there's just the, <laughs> the constant style of like nickel and dime requests in brunch service. I mean, to all you brunch warriors out there, God bless you. Because I... <laughs> I am old and grumpy and no longer have the patience for it whatsoever. It is a tough shift. I and it typically it. starts at eight or nine and it goes late. It goes to like goes three to or like four. four. That's yeah. a long shift yeah. full of running More your butter for off. your muffin? Would you like me to butter your muffin? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he did brunch shifts. They made him wait tables as well because he was looking for those like night nighttime bartending shifts, but there weren't any open yet. So they're like, well, I'll throw you some hours on the tables. And uh, eventually he found that, you know, even though it wasn't really the place for him in the few years that he was there, he really appreciated Danny Meyer and Steve Henson for changing the attitude of looking for enthusiastic and apt learners instead of long-term experience. Cause everywhere else that he had went to, they're like, now nah, you have to have uh, at least two years of bartending experience in New York before I'd ever put you in my bar. And at the five points, you know, it was, it was a little bit different. They're like, yeah, you look like you're, you're into it. If you're willing to put the work behind it, you're willing to do these crappy bar shifts. Then I'll, I'll put you behind where there's nicer bar shifts, if you will. This is going to come up again, <clears throat> but uh, there's probably no better way. This is the blueprint. If you want to, if you really want to do it and you want to learn, you're going to have to pay your rent along the way too. So you got to take, you got to take a job somewhere, just get a job yeah. somewhere. And chances are, if you're in a, a place where there is a semi vibrant restaurant and bar scene, you will eventually meet somebody who meets some, who knows somebody else who's hiring. And that's how you move around. Sure. But you've got to pay your rent and you've got to do some bullshit first. So, yeah, sometimes it's shuffling kegs. Sometimes it's stocking shelves. Sometimes it's working brunch. Sometimes it's working at some dive bar that you'd much rather drink at than work at. <laughs> However, you have to do something to gain experience and to get to know people. And that also allows you to eventually go other places with those people and watch and listen and learn, which is what he does. Yeah. And how he digs in. He is he's a good blueprint for putting your nose down and just getting experience raw hours and time because even at a brunch shift or a dive bar you're still going to learn routine service and so much i'm sure there are midwesterners who don't fit this profile but i feel like being from the midwest the working your your bones to the to the grindstone if you will is is sometimes the the yeah midwest the midwesterners are yeah. like super good at like yeah 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 only two years of this yeah sure, sure, sure. I yeah it. like just kind yeah. of bust through and then maybe within the first year you're already bar manager or something like that you know depends on where you're at and how yeah. well you do but it's so weird because this industry shifts so quickly yeah like it can look like nobody's hiring it can look like you can't get a job anywhere and in six months it can be vastly everyone different. is hiring yeah, yeah. 
That's strange. But he he does use the same philosophy that he learned from Five Points from the owners there. Um, and Danny Meyer in particular, I know, is a really great business writer about as far as like how to operate your business and keep your staff happy. And he uses those kind of mental um, uh, mindsets, I should say, in PDT and when he hires elsewhere. But um, food and wine pairing does come naturally to him afterwards, after the Five Points. He's a really staunch supporter of seasonal market-driven food. And in the period of his beverage education, he thought he would become a sommelier until he met Eben Freeman in 2003, who was the bar manager of WD40, which is a bar that like was around the corner from where he lived at the time. And he even had taken him to Milk and Honey. Milk and Honey is now Very called, famous bar, yeah. Yeah, now called Attaboy, super famous bar. Um, he remembers his time Was there. Was that Sasha Petrasky? Yeah. yeah. He remembers his time Rest there, the peace. experience, uh, them having no bar menu, but having like an omakase style of making a drink for you. So you just sit and you chat couple questions maybe from your wait staff um you give them what you're feeling like what your mood is today and then they bring out you know on a really nice bar cart exactly what you were looking for whether you knew it or not um which is something that you know we try to do at least an element of that here uh when when guests are receptive to it but in general it's it's been something that he found for himself as a guest will create such a nice amazing experience that you are just always willing to come back there yeah. pretty much anytime also, it's, I mean, especially in the cocktail world, it's an easy in to conversation. Mm -hmm. You don't have oh, to talk yeah. about sports or what people do for a living. Half the people who come in here don't want to talk about what they do for a living whatsoever. I have regulars that don't even know what they do because I figure if they want to tell me, <laughs> they'll tell me. Yeah. If they, most likely the day they don't That's want fair. to talk about it and yeah. they don't want to rehash their whole entire day by the time they finally sit down at seven o'clock. Right. Talking about the drink that you're about to make them asking questions you've already had a conversation and it's in it's to the benefit of your service you're choreographing yeah. their yeah, experience yeah you're, for them you're literally making your job easier yeah. yeah yeah one of my favorite fra phrases to use behind this bar is don't look at the menu talk to me you know? right right <laughs> some people want to dive into a menu yeah, which is, which is i fine, i usually yeah. like to i like dive to look into it over. a menu yeah. you yeah. know uh, or but some, like if, if you if you give them a couple minutes, you can see they're still struggling. Then I'll yes. be like, oh, yeah, that's Let me the help time. You. It becomes yeah, really yeah, easy sure, to yeah. see. Or some people want to order something off the menu and then like, OK, now I have a drink. Now I can talk. Now I want to right. talk about what I'm going to have next. And maybe that's the custom. Yeah, maybe that's the thing. But again, what you'll see throughout the show and we're going to mention it over and over is a really good blueprint to how to get good at this job. Yeah, he followed a, a really, I think, strategically excellent path to making himself good at this job. To a degree, to yeah. a degree. So um, he had made a bit of his name, uh, excuse me, he had made a bit of a name for himself at Gramercy Tavern, um, but it was later on when he was working at a restaurant called Pace where he met the editor of Food and Wine Cocktail Book through his brother Peter. Um, it's a book that Meehan would actually later become an editor of as well. And at the time of the first uh, meeting with that editor, he was going around interviewing all the country's top mixologists and Meehan had asked him if he was planning to or had already met Audrey Sanders, who we talked to, or Saunders, excuse me, at the Pegu Club, which he had. And he asked, basically uh, insisted that this editor ask her to come and dine at Pace, which she eventually did a couple months later. And Meehan was able to serve her directly and culminated in asking uh, to come work with her and her team at Pegu Club, which she would open only a few months later after that. 
So he opened up the bar program with her. And uh, it was mentioned time and again, his appreciation for Saunders' tutelage in helping him shape uh, himself as a mixologist and the bar owner that he is today. In 2007 at Pegu Club, he was named Star Chef's Rising Star Mixologist. So he kind of put his name out there in New York, which is notoriously a very big city and hard to get your name out. And at the time, there were so few people who were like properly interested in cocktails back then that it would be offered, he would be offered consulting opportunities like left and right. And he said a lot of the times that he didn't actually, like he was faking it till he made it the whole time. But eventually that kind of invited confidence grew into true confidence. And he mentioned again in an, in an interview with, um, I think, the Speakeasy podcast um, that Saunders ran uh, Pegu Club as a dysfunctional family with her at the helm as like their mother. And he adopted that same mentality at PDT where he was the dysfunctional family's dad. Yeah, And uh, I kind of think that would work out in almost any bar situation because most people who work in the bar industry, not everyone, are like just a bunch of misfits. And you are working together to create all this experience for everybody else that you yourselves need to be taken care of by your team lead or your bar owner or whoever it is that's kind of running the show. Are you talking I found about, it to be um, very sentimental. Just as a quick aside, the Speakeasy podcast you're talking about, is that the one that's hosted by like Souther Teague? Yes. And, yeah. yeah. Nice. That is a great podcast. That's that is a great podcast, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. – the- and that's part of the evolutionary change in how restaurants and bars are 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 run today. Yeah, because yeah, you have you have these kind of the, a number of different stereotypes. You know, the completely absentee owner who doesn't care, um, who comes in before. and just barks at people, and might you know just cruise in and bring in friends and then adjust the lights and then peace out. Yeah, you have. <laughs> Um, how you adjust the lights? I know somebody. I know somebody who was described that way, (laughs) and I thought, "Oh, it's awful." And this was from a a former person, a former employee who had worked for them. Uh, I heard this description of somebody years ago, and I was always like, "Wow, what an annoying ass thing to do." Uh, And then uh, you've got, you know, you've got the corporate style of management with lots of things that are laminated and lots of checklists and lots of just very bottom line driven um, decisions that that kind of suck the soul out of the culture Makes and yeah bar needs bars need to make money yeah. to survive like and then people will have jobs however there are ways to cultivate that i believe that are different than than these kind of uh anti-humanist uh, sure, yeah, uh, yeah. styles of management and <clears throat> that that description of how uh saunders did it and how Meehan did it i think is is a really good one for an environment it's a good one for any environment but it's a good one for an environment that that wants to foster creativity oh yeah and and yeah. wants to foster creativity and also the interaction with the lot. guest that is that is necessary to to keeping that creativity going exactly yeah. otherwise it's all mercenary and they just order vodka you know and tonics and you don't ever <laughs> yeah. your cocktail program dies yeah i think you really do have to let people kind of ride their own wave and uh if you know, if it works out for them, it works out great. And if it's a mistake of whatever reason they they took it a little too far, then that's just a learning experience, and they move on with. Well, and then it'll also well. that style of you know like service or whatever. It'll kind of weed out the people who are you know just doing it as like paycheck versus the people who are doing it because they have like for a like passion a, for it and yeah. you know they're into the whole idea of the service and the idea of the bar and all that. Yeah. But this idea of a family, a dysfunctional family, also I think pushes forward the idea that every person needs to be taken on their own terms sure managing people is a case-by-case basis and not subject to um corporate style training uh templates and and the timelines that go along with them yeah 
Um, there have been people here who, if I had run this bar the way that I was taught by some people to run a bar, we would have let go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you never know how long it's going to take for someone to blossom. You never know how much personality will come out in six months. Right. Um, yeah. You know, just quick, you know, aside, our friend Lexi is running a bar. I know. And the UP I'm so now. happy for her. And Shout out to Lexi. about a month into her as a host, I was like, she's never going to, this is never going to work. She yeah. won't even say boo to me. And yeah. I think I'm, I think I'm, she's frightened every single time she talks to anybody, <laughs> guests included. And um, I think that everybody needs something different from, from a management style. And the whole team kind of embraced her and, and, and worked with her. And I, I can't wait to go up to St. Ignace and have a drink at her yes. bar. So great success story. That yeah, Lexi. Way to go. Oh, yeah. I was going to say this a little bit later, but you've brought it up. So it kind of makes great timing. It's, um, he was uh, he's being interviewed by barnrestaurant.com and as a takeaway for his teaching style, I, I'd like to quote him. So I've switched my management philosophy around to promote a culture that rewards independent, self-sufficient, accountable staff members who only come to me when they've exhausted their own problem-solving resources and I'm grateful for it. My teams appeal to a broader consumer audience uh, because we have more than one way of approaching everything we do. So in that sense, you know, it's it's new and seasoned workers alike that might have great ideas or value. And um, if you stick to your own ways, like you're saying, if you're sticking to this like corporate management style, then you're never going to be able to see that or even take that in. So it's really about like listening and working with your team instead of just kind of like always communicating to them what they need to do. So he's employing this idea that, you know, if you teach your team right, if you like really work with them and put a lot of confidence in them, they'll find their own ways of of propelling your business forward in a, mm -hmm. in a positive right. light. And it will be done within the overarching philosophy because if yes. you're taking the time, they'll have over, they'll have already bought in exactly to that philosophy. And then they're just like, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do it. And I, I know I'm still treating the, the, the business right. Yeah. 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 That's how it's an awesome quote about, especially in this industry. Good job, Mian. So, uh, so we talked a little bit about how he kind of made his way up, but the the place that he's known for the most, of course, is PDT. So he co-founded PDT, uh, shorthand for Please Don't Tell, in 2007, where guests enter through Criff Dogs, a creative hot dog stand selling dogs, quote, as unique as New Yorkers themselves, and uh, transports them through a phone booth uh, to a taxidermy and bottle-filled, elegant, intimately dark cocktail bar. Certainly for the time, PDT was a standout at cocktail culture and, bon and the Bonviance experience. And he had taken everything he had learned uh, in his fast track through New York bar scene and applied it to classic styles in a genuinely warm attitude of uh, prohibition cocktail cultures. The place is tiny. West through there again. It's like 16, is it 16 seats or like 44 seats, 16 at the bar? I think it's 16 at the bar. And four. It's, it's smaller than we are here yeah. by a touch. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those long, narrow bars. <clears throat> yes. The bars on the one side. And everything yeah. else kind of up against the wall. Bottles all over. Yeah. The, over the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And um And this is this is it. This is the legendary bar. This yeah. is where people, you know, where we are start hearing about him and what he's doing. Because the the concept is awesome. The telephone booth is awesome. The fact that they just serve hot dogs is awesome. That they make great <laughs> drinks. And the whole experience is amazing. But there's no Meehan show here. There's no book. If it was just the phone booth, right? The right. cool entrance only works once. Everything else that they did once you were inside—that was—that's what is Keeps a major stamp in yeah. terms of influence on current cocktail culture. Yeah, 
and part of that is to do um he he notes that his brother is a little bit of a, a help and influence in that because his of his connections with the food and beverage industry but also his own tenacity to learn and fill his portfolio with people in the industry that he like sought out to get to know like audrey sanders frank's saunders frank's yeah but um as far as that you know the bar successes go he turns that into writing and that's where we get for instance the manual so he starts out uh, writing for food and wine cocktails book uh, like i mentioned before he was an editor for that for several several years he also uh, makes mention uh mr boston's bartender's mr. guide boston's he's contributed to that guide. which is one of john's hey, favorites <laughs> such a silly book <laughs> and the sommelier journal journal excuse me when he was uh, uh anticipating sommelier training as well but he does come to to appreciate wine and everything as well. Uh, his works like the PDT cocktail book, which is arguably his first big publication, and the manual are two of the most popular works for both people in the industry and those genuinely interested in learning uh, for themselves as a, as a home hobby, you might say. And I'd certainly say that the cocktail book is vastly easy to interpret no matter who you are, but the manual is a little bit more like exactly as described right it's an industry the hows book. and whys and it's yeah it's how more to of get an industry there. book yeah the pdt cocktail That's book is an awesome book to have at home the art is wonderful the builds are pretty easy yeah usually like maybe five no more than five ingredients yeah 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 a lot of really really fun stuff classics and good stories that go along with the cocktails that aren't classics that book was is imminently usable right when you right when you buy it for whomever mm -hmm. i think yeah. That was and that was a book that I remember when it came out. I you know I bought it and it got it got kind of passed around quite a bit. And there's a little bit about how to like how to build your bar, what you know what the what the sink should look like, where to hang your tools. Like there's a lot of like a little bit of working hints in there too. Logistics and strategy. Yeah, as far as, yeah. Like, how spatial to build logistics your, yeah. is a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, because the PDT cocktail book was modeled kind of after the Savoy cocktail book. It has about like 200 pages of classic. Uh, classic and modern cocktail recipes. So he's quoted as using Audrey Saunders, David Wondrich, uh, Don Lee, Julio Bermeo, uh, and Dale DeGroff, Sean Howard, Lydia Rissmuller. How do you pronounce your name? Rissmuller. Uh, Rissmuller. Anyway, in uh, they all arranged in alphabetical order, which I personally appreciate. I love an alphabetized <laughs> list. Uh, they venture from fairly simple to slightly more complex only in the sense of like technique for instance like a julep how to crush your ice and how to properly distribute the salt and mint etc or sugar and mint excuse me oh i um, can tell you all about that yeah <laughs> you worked on saturday did you sell a lot of juleps on saturday for like two hours awesome. yeah for like the first hour and a half as it always goes and then no one cared about gotcha. <laughs> seven o'clock derby's over man <laughs> sugar and mint bourbon slushies um but the recipes are clearly laid out a few sentences of description and uh, it's simply the best recommendation for flavor profile as far as like what brands he chooses for those cocktails. Uh, yeah, it, you get yeah. you read that book and you realize I, it doesn't feel like brand sponsorships. It feels like this is just what we use at the bar. Yeah, it's this is what we like. It's yeah. not like he's favoring one over the other. Not really. But there's a bunch of little tiny things that show like some really great genuine authorship. And that's what I noticed about it the first time I, I, I read it. Like the wine that they use when they talk about wine is really good and cool. And it, it reminded me that no, a cocktail bar should have good wine. Even if you only have three of them, uh, the use of Hello. fortified wine and the use of good sparkling, why do you use which sparkling that you do use all the, all the extra stuff was really well thought out. And it made me, when I first read it, research brands that I wouldn't have researched had I not read it. So it, 
there were things I didn't know, but were still very straightforward and, and, and provided avenues to learn more about different ingredients that I could use in a cocktail. Yeah. Speaking of extra stuff, one of my favorite things about the PDT cocktail book is the addition of short recipes of classic Criff Dogs recipes, I should say. Oh, the hot dog recipes. I've always meant to make Secret one. Secret topping. Secret topping. He uses things, uh, recipes, excuse me, from star chefs like Wiley Dufresne, David Chang, who is on um, Netflix, is the... He's got a couple different Netflix does, specials. Yes. Yeah, very mm -hmm. good stuff there. Daniel Holm. And uh, the top recommendation from that category is the John John Dragon Dog. John John Dragon. Dragon. Yeah. John John well, is that the one with the, the cream cheese on it? Yeah. 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 Sign me up. Yeah. It's keto friendly, y'all. It's keto friendly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, Except for the bun, right? Well, you can take it out. Use lettuce. Okay. All right. Anyway. The uh, I just watched you lick the rim of that glass, and it was very awkward for me. Well, it's really yeah. – I, I rimmed the crap out of it. This is the, um, this is the Jim Meehan beer and a smoke cocktail. So it's a, <laughs> it's like a, um, a michelada variant kind of with mezcal and lime and celery bitters and hot sauce, and you top it with beer. But you do this like little celery salt, uh, sugar and salt rim. And it's a cool drink. Mm -hmm. It totally – you got to get that rim really in there so yeah. you can yeah, really enjoy yeah. it. But if you, I mean, yes, it's a cool idea conceptually, but this is one of the drinks that you can tell he obviously put on there because they were serving hot dogs. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So, like, yeah. this, is, this is to go with the hot dogs that you'll be Beer eating when yeah. you're in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a yeah. mustard cocktail in there, too, which is, I've actually huh? made. No, it's called yeah. the condiment cocktail. That's what condiment it is. Cocktail. And it uses mustard in it. And it's very, very strange. We had a Chinese Italy, mustard yeah, brother. cocktail. Couple That's ago. why I made that mustard. Yeah, because I, ah, I put mustard in the cocktail. Yeah, <laughs> I put mustard in the tiki drink. Nice. What drink was that? I'm trying to remember now. The name of it? Yeah. I can only think of Carl's that use cilantro and turmeric. There's been That's so many the over the years, anyway. you can't keep track of them. <laughs> no, I do. I, I served it in a coupe. It was really good. Nobody bought it. I can't remember the name. It was really good. I, I do remember. And that. nobody bought it. Yeah, and nobody bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the PDT cocktail book in 2012, he won um, James. Uh, oops, sorry. That's a different one. So um, I'll list some of his awards, shall I? Uh, in 2007, he was uh, Star Chef's Rising Star, which we already mentioned. 2009, he won the Spirited Award for American Bartender at uh, of the Year at Tales of the Cocktail. Oh, yes, with the PDT Cocktail Book in 2012, he was given a Spirited Award for Best Cocktail Slash Bartending Book. In that same year, he won the James Beard Foundation's First Ever Bar Program Award. By 2015, he uh, got the Spirited Award for Best Bar Mentor. In 2018, he took two awards, one uh, from Tales for Best Cocktail Slash Bartending Book, and then another from the James Beard Foundation for Best Beverage Book for the Meehan's Bartender Manual, which Ooh. we'll talk about next. That's a hell of a run for 10 years. That's not so bad. No. Yeah. Um, so this gargantuan of a book, looks like the Jolly Green Giant if it was a manual, uh, is modeled after old European motorcycle manuals like Triumph, Indian, Ferrari, etc. And it's hefty but durable with softened edges on the page so you can pick it up and not get too much jamming on the fingers, things like that. Um, put it right in front of you at the bar while you're working. You can get it wet and it's easily wipeable. Um, although I still have a few kind of bar stains on you got mine. Some sticky Personally, pages, I got some sticky pages. Um, but the, the pages themselves, as long as you don't fully submerge them are also really easy to kind of clean off. Um, it's got a great index for references, but it also a clearly organized list of chapters. Um, in Meehan's own words, he wanted them to use the manual as a way to show new or interested bartenders how to run a bar, how to build a drink, how to do it well, and why it's necessary to do it that way. 
the necessary means to. Yeah, he he added inserts from professionals in the industry who he's admitted can do it better, um, even if it's not his own style. So just picking up randomly, I flipped one with Don Lee. And for those watching, he's got like a really nice kind of profile picture and then some words of inspiration from him uh, related to the topic in the page itself. And uh, it's a little bit, you know, hipster making it look like an old road, man road manual for like a triumph sure. or something like that um, and name dropping all over the place. But it does hold great insight for anyone starting off looking for an avenue to learn from where uh, their mentors either may be lacking or where they're searching for more inspiration than time might allow. And I think after 10 years, I mean, a really, really packed full 10 years where he was, he went from, you know, just running programs to, to becoming, you know, Jim Meehan with capital letters. This book reads as a way to put it all down somewhere. Yeah. Like this is all of it from the last 10 or 12 years, all that I've got to give. Collect. And I'm going to put it in there and I'm going to, I'm going to throw all the influences in there and I'm going to tell all the stories. I'm going to talk about all the technique because I have to put it out there. The PDT book is a PDT book. It's a book from that bar. Yeah. And the Death and Company book is a book from that bar. This is one bartender putting their years the most formative and yeah. creative years of their career yeah. on a page. Yeah. And I love that because all of our experiences are obviously subjective, but his is is so helpful and it's rendered in a way that is very useful. And yeah. very readable. I mean, yeah. he's super self-aware about um, his work and how, like, how much, how many years he had to put behind that in order to create the content. But he's also including things like the classic cocktail book uh, principles of crafting, or like drink recipes and families, etc. Um, like, for instance, he starts off with the history of punch and tons of nods to David Wondrich there, and then the rise of the Tiki Bar and to today's cocktail renaissance, highlighting the necessity of uh, making your bar an integral part of the community, for instance. That's something that I always found uh, to be kind of lacking in, in other educational texts about yeah. how, to, how to start a bar. Like, you really have to put your community first and kind of know where your role is yeah. sure, in yeah. that as well. Well, um, you don't exist in a vacuum. Right. You know, right, you do right. you do business in a in a place, a specific yeah. place. If you put a tiki bar in the mountains, will it go as well as if you had done something different? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it might escapism, actually, really actually. Pop off. it might, it might well. yeah. yeah. The idea of escapism, yeah. But that kind of idea where you, you know, uh, really kind of count all of your eggs and keep them safe. Yeah. Um, one of the passages that caught me was uh, about naming cocktails. So in the book he highlights first and foremost that a cocktail's name is its marketing. Sure, you're selling us a list of ingredients, but really the focus should be uh, to highlight what it is that your guests should be expecting within the drink or within the experience of having the drink. So like every good cocktail puts you into a mood or a mindset that you intend to keep for the time that you're drinking it, or it's reminiscent of said name. So like a hanky-panky might make you feel a little frisky, or a cosmopolitan might put you in the heart of like culture and and uh, style or something. Maybe once Manhattan upon a time. Put you in Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's Which the is, idea of it, though. Yes, someone, exactly. Know. Now, our, our whole concept about naming drinks here really says a lot about us because we have six different cocktails with the word black in them. Black Mirror, Black Philip. Oh, well. It's a very dark, <laughs> it's a dark darkly tar. inspired. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> it's an interesting way to put it. Well, the one way, I and I think this is, I think other people believe this, too. I heard it put this way once, and you, you see it with cocktail names all the time. The cocktail, um, the cocktail isn't the album. 
the bar menu is the album. The cocktail is one of the songs. Sure. And that mood lasts for as long as you're listening to the song or as long as you drink the drink. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, why cocktails get named after songs. Lots a lot. of cocktails are but named after songs. They also yeah. get named after things that are evocative of mood or color or mm-hmm. or things that are just a touch abstract. Yeah. I think. And or places because places are a mood too. Yeah. Yeah. There's I, creaminess to it. Then you might add some type of like word that resonates yeah. with cream. a lot of times yeah. it starts with like tasting the finished cocktail first and then you know the name sometimes comes to you really easily or sometimes you gotta kinda sit and think about it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, what the cocktail makes you think of. Yeah. Same thing with a song or when you're standing there looking at a painting. What is you know, what is the only thing you can really say about it at first is what it makes you think of. Mm-hmm. I think generally it's um not necessarily appropriate to think of a name of a drink first and then build a drink based on that. No, that's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to do. You can do it. I've done it a couple of times, but (laughs) it, uh, it, it creates something way different than what you might've thought of before. For instance, trying to do it. Well, you're going to, you're going to force it every single time. Exactly. That's why it took like four menus to get the locomotive breath. I really liked that name, but I couldn't actually think of the drink until I thought of the drink and was like, Oh wait, locomotive breath would be a good name for this. Yeah. And then we made 7 trillion. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, those are his two big books. Talked a little bit about, um, his like back, history you might say but his influence on the cocktail industry is like all of that combined plus more so he's moved since um since starting pdt in 2015 to portland oregon had a couple kids living in new york it's a bit tough to do he wanted Living to the focus dream of the 90s. on them yeah he's and uh, and start a family and kind of and be a little bit more um insular to himself so he moved out to portland and uh he started up with he started a couple different things. So he did Stray Dog, which was a pop-up bar at the Big Trouble Bar in Old Town with his uh, old friend Sean Horde, who he opened PPT with, and used some local commissary syrups with some noted success. He's got an app. So there's an Apple. If you buy it from the Apple store, it's $9.99. Imagine that's the same for the Google store. But it's just got um, a list of a bunch of classic cocktails, a bunch of cocktails from PDT itself. There's a function where you can add the bottles in your home bar and it'll show you what's missing or what you can make from those bottles. It's been um, pretty popular. And uh, his Chicago bar, Prairie School, it unfortunately only ran for a short period of time before the Heisler ownership team pulled it in uh, 2018. But it was right across the street from the Google Fulton building with a Frank Lloyd Wright theme. Um, And then Prairie School is reference to a school that was on that location prior and just kind of mixed Midwestern sensibility with Japanese flavors but it didn't win over a local revenue stream, so it kind of got tossed. He does currently have a satellite bar in Hong Kong for PDT, which opened in 2001. Oh, sorry, 2021, uh, which has been much more successful. It's located on Queens Road in central Hong Kong, and he opened it up with um, Jeff Bell, who was his kind of lead bartender for the longest time in PDT. He's also won American Bartender of the Year before, and Daniel Valencia. And yeah, now he currently operates a consulting firm firm called Mixography Inc. Um, and mixography is a term that he took from David Wondrich. He had been using it. It's obviously a term that you use for like mixing CDs and stuff when you're, uh, <laughs> when you're a DJ. Mixography? But, mixography. But uh, it's the combination of mixology and biography. Geography? Biography. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. But it's not sure either. <laughs> Sounds cool, though. He curated the agency to be able to help other bartenders, bar owners, people in the industry just develop um, and design their 
their program to the fullest extent the way that he's tried to do in his own businesses. He's a uh, most most notably they have worked with Takibi is an is Izakaya style, I want to say, restaurant in the Pacific Northwest, and then the Centurion Lounge bars, which can be found in uh, numerous airports, including Dallas, Denver, LA, New York, Miami, London, Hong Kong, etc. Jamaica, Bahamas. Yeah. He's an ambassador for Banks Rum, speaking yes. of Jamaica. See, that was a segue. There you go. Yes, thank you. So. <laughs> he has his own brand of Bloody Mary seasonings, like the salts around the room, you should say, called La Boiti, which he, uh, worked on with a master spice blender and he has his own set of mixology spoons which we actually carry here at the r&r mm -hmm. as well as uh bartending bags rolls and bar carts which he um his stuff is really Warren nice Giles yeah really fancy it's really really pretty that's yeah. like a 500 bar roll the leather one i the leather bar cart is what surprised me like i don't want to spill anything on the leather bar <laughs> cart but it looks really nice it's got to be it's got to be user friendly though otherwise it's, it probably know. cleans up really good probably Probably really easily. More mm -hmm. guiles. Good work. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, it, one of the styles of bartending that Mihan perpetuates and something that we do here is kind of like that omakase type of service that we mentioned before. And that's kind of the one of the biggest things that you pull from the research of what he does or what he offers from mixography, what he does when he's teaching. He's taught at the BAR, so Beverage and Alcohol Resource Team that Wondrich and DeGroff started. Um, he goes to numerous symposiums teaching this style and then teaching especially what we mentioned before where your focus in the beverage industry is not to be quite so controlling but to be a little bit more freeform, remember the creative aspects of all of it and to be really focused not on yourself but on the guests because it's hospitality first and foremost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the whole philosophy, right? It's a very guest-forward philosophy. Yes. Yeah. But it's not a... It's not a bend over backward and do no, anything no, no, no. <laughs> um, philosophy. It is. It, it's very centered on on conversation and trying to get to the root of what somebody wants, and then using the creativity that you've cultivated over the years to do so. Yes, I think you, you got to remember your you're not just your cocktail menu because somebody's going to come in and not want it, and. I think with really, really good cocktail menus and lots and lots of knowledge comes hubris and comes a, a dangerous attitude towards the guest. And I think what I like the most about him and what he perpetuates when he speaks is that you got to keep that stuff in check because eventually you're going to have to work with somebody. You're going to have to coax them and, and help them find the drink that they want. And it's on you to do it. Yeah. You have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also too, at the same time, it's like, it's great to like have that conversation with them, get to know them that way. And it's like, it's a much more different kind of service. than like you were talking about earlier, like, earlier, like the corporate style service where like, you know, like you're always do checking off the checklist and, right. da, 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 and all that. It's, it's a much more personable kind of service, which, you know, in my opinion is a lot better. And I feel like the guest gets more out of that kind of service, whether that's other than just checking off the check. Well, it also like communicates, if you do it well, it communicates the culture of the bar. Yes. And, yeah. and they will see your philosophy on how you build drinks. Yeah. And then they'll come back for that, not just your menu, but they'll come back for that because they mm -hmm. believe that you actually, you have something, something foundational that you've accumulated that drives the way that you make drinks, that drives yeah. the way that you do things, that drives the way that you talk to them and you help them. And that's easier to trust. Yeah. Yeah. Than a menu created in a vacuum 
before service. Mm-hmm. Or like anyone with super egos, right? Because there's plenty of That's like great bartenders <laughs> who have like an era, like just an aura, excuse me, of super ego and it floats around them like a rain cloud. But Meehan has a very obvious level of humbleness to him. Yeah. And part of that comes, um, I was listening to a different interview explaining this belief that he says, you know, you can do 10,000 hours of bartending and still not be a great bartender if you're not being like really focused with intention at the task at hand on not only yourself, but the guests, like I mentioned before, but then that, you know, the day that you're not interested in your own work, you're just kind of going through the motions because you've done it 10,000 times before. Is That's the day when that, you start learning bar flair. Yeah, that you're just going through the motions <laughs> to get the paycheck. <laughs> Wait, what? Did you say bar flair? Yeah, I said that's when you start oh, learning God. bar flair. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, day that you're Thank not God, interested in your own point. work and that you're just interested in picking up a paycheck and that's not what it's for. You know, yeah. you have to be receptive to what's happening, good, bad, or indifferent. And you have to be active to it. You want to work together with your core group. If if your manager is not having a great day, then learn how to rely on your other staff members to kind of pick up the slack so that you can be that person for someone else too when that happens to them. You know what I mean? Like it's really being kind and humble and approachable to every idea and receptive. Because you can't do this job without talking to people. Yes. If you're it's having a shit day, you can't, job, do, yeah. you can't do the job without talking to people. There's plenty of jobs that you can do yeah. without talking to people. But talking to people and and giving service is the job and in like a highly creative cocktail environment it's more of the job yeah it's way more of the job and yeah you're not feeling it and it's the day that somebody's going to come in and ask about some indian single malt that you maybe don't feel like talking about because you haven't thought about it in a year but you just, you have to talk about it i would say bring it down take a sip with them figure it out together yeah. if you like yeah I think that people want to see that you're still creatively interested and curious and engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Because too much of an attitude, too much hubris, like you said, it follows people around like a cloud and it isolates you from the people that you're talking to. It's a, it's a, it's a veneer of defense. Yeah. So again, people want to see that you're, you're as engaged with them, but you're their guide. Yeah. Right. You know, and you can be just that when you're at work, you can go home and play with your dog or go to the park and like have your own sense of self too, but just be present in your, in what you're doing when you're here, when you're at mm-hmm. your job or wherever. And, and, so. and within yourself, they, I mean, you don't have to be a robot. People like personality. Oh yeah. 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 And it's okay to p- tell people no too. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> if they just want something stupid, it's okay to be like, no, we don't have that. We don't do that. Right. <laughs> Or maybe soup is not the word. Just um, well, like if they don't look at the menu and be like, "I'd have this," and be like, "I would yeah. love to give you that, but I don't carry it." Sure. Well, it comes Here's back this. to the phrase that yeah. we always use. Well, I'll just have because yeah. they're used to being offered nothing, so they've built up a series of drinks that they just order by default. Yeah. Because they know they're safe. Correct. And then all of a sudden, you come along, and you don't offer some of that stuff, and it's like, oh my god. Yeah. So that's when you have to step in and not be annoyed and actually help them out right. and work with them a this little bit. This can still be a safe space if I don't have a vodka cranberry. Here's yeah. what you can have. And the more you yeah. read about me, him, this is what he this is what he is about. You know, he's about yeah. like just trying to like, hey, this is fun. Cocktails are fun. I like yeah. it. I have you know thoughts on how I think it should be done. And I'm totally here to help you. There was another interview, just because that's how I did the research, was basically a series of interviews that I listened to or watched or read. And he said something along the lines of, let's see. um, Oh, gosh, it escaped me this moment I said it out loud. Basically. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) We were just talking about 
we were talking about uh, being engaged and enthusiastic. No, specifically the last few sentences that you said. Stupid drinks. Stupid drinks. Oh, stupid drinks. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like. <laughs> Find the triggers. That's how you restart your booms. There's a lot in that brain. Yeah, no, but there's like there's this idea that you can only have uh, what's comfortable to you. And he had mentioned before in an interview that like the one of the best things about going to a, a bar or working at a bar, excuse me, is you're part of the party. Yeah. You actually get to be part of the party. But if you're a little bit of an introvert like me, I can say for myself, it's nice to be at the party, but you don't necessarily want to be the center of the party. And the bartender is not the center of the party like some bartenders think. Mm -hmm. They can be if it, if you need to like kick things up a notch. But really, you got to work that bar rail. You got to work yeah, that bar rail. Yes, Or is to uh is to be there for everyone else and so you're still involved you still get to be social you have this aspect yeah. of like yeah. listening and engaging but you don't actually have to be like the big you know you're not the show yeah and so, that's one of the, the best, whole thing is the show the yeah. whole night is yeah the, show. the night that's one is the, the best show, like but... feelings too like when you're behind the stick behind the bar and like you have like the majority of your bar rail is all talking to each other and having a great time yeah having drinks and you're facilitating and you're just facilitating that, that. Yep. right yeah so the, you can still walk away and, and the music's like killing it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody's you can say well everybody's having a really good saturday night yeah <laughs> i'm gonna drink some more coffee next time we do this by the way oh you a little sleepy then but yeah, I mean, I had added a few fun facts. Fun facts. We fun love facts. fun facts. Uh, Meehan said that he'll drink just about anything except for vodka, but one of his favorite classic drinks is the good old Sazerac. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. in, in a, that was a slightly later interview. In an earlier interview, he said he drinks at home most days a some Japanese whiskey, like a Japanese highball, or maybe some mezcal, for instance, like the drinks that you two guys have. Um, also, some of his favorite books are David Wondrich Killer Cocktails or Simon Difford's Difford's Guide. The Difford's Guide was such an influential thing for me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy. I was happy to see this because Meehan's just, I think he's a little bit older than I am. But yeah. the Difford's Guide was important because it was the first thing I could get that oh, had a bunch here. of recipes in it. Yeah. Like it had, like, when I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s, I loved those books. And I, there was a mag, they used to come in magazines and you could buy like the end of the year book. But man, that is how. I learned so many early recipes and then learned cool. how they didn't work or did work. Did or did not work. Yeah. I like it. Ted Haig's uh, Vintage Spirits and Forgotten it's Cocktails was too. another one yeah. as well. Yeah. You read that book now and half, it's like just half of a classics menu from some, some craft cocktail <laughs> bar because everybody read that book and they're like, oh, let's do this. Nice. You know, some of the drinks don't work, but some of them do. And, they're, and a lot of them are just things that you – Totally take for granted, like corpse survivors that are just all oh over the place now. Gosh, I love a corpse survivor. You I can't love get all, away from the corpse any survivor. Variant. No, I uh, yeah, you any like variant. Corpse one. I love the corpse one. Yeah, yeah, yeah corpse two. Just depends on what you're feeling that day, you know. Yeah, or if I it's summer, too. or if it's summer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> summer v autumn. Corpse one, autumn, summer, corpse two. If you're a seasonal drinker, mm -hmm. that's most of what I had. I do want to. My own personal closing thought was that um, was from when he was asked, what does success mean to you? Meehan replied, success is all relative. I've met so many people who have had everything and are unsatisfied. And those who have very little from material standpoint, who seem super content. Uh, I added the super in there. I, I wake <laughs> up every day and try to do something to grow as a person. I'm driven and life takes unexpected turns. As long as I can adapt to those changes and maintain the will to be excellent at whatever I do, things will work themselves out in the end. Yeah. Which I find to be a really super cool personal philosophy which sure, here. I yeah. adapt yeah. some of that myself well it's like when you know we're out we're like talking before the shift like what do you think tonight's gonna be it's like yeah. there's no point in even like guessing anymore yeah. it's like you know like it, what's gonna happen will happen you know yeah right? 
Yeah, you open the doors. You see who walks in. Roll with the punches. And yeah, you just try to adapt to it. One of my best nights on a tiki and the tiki hut was like a super storm one hour later. So it's like the perfect first oh, hour yeah. of service and then boosh, rain all over the place. And you were standing in a in a puddle. Yes. Trying not to get electrocuted as you had to remind me to pull all the cords up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> that was a good night. Yeah. In the words of Charlotte Ruffini, hell yeah, brother, run it. Yeah. <laughs> But cool if you if you decide to read anything about Jim Meehan or learn anything about him, remember that his again I I think his philosophy towards what he does is excellent, and I think it's the my favorite. I used to think it was the recipes that I took from him the most, but it's not. It's it's how to do this for a while, and how to do it in a way that keeps yourself engaged, that keeps you good at it, and that from somebody who likes to learn, it keeps it from getting very static. Yeah. How you approach each day, I, it's it's something that I still struggle with. Twenty years into this job, but like, you know, just doing a show and, and reading over Courtney's research like this one, it's invigorating. It, it reminds you, you of it. some things you might have forgotten about. Yeah, yeah. Like, kind of like the ha- the key to happiness is learning how to be. No, the key to life is learning how to be happy through the passage of time. Wow, that's what life is: passing time. Oh yes, Big Bird said that. This Big is. A, <laughs> are you uncomfortable? This is the deepest show we've ever done. <laughs> yes, we are going very deep. It seems. All right, I think that's, that's it for this episode. Yeah. It is. Are you closing it down? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Lulu's uh, over there mouthing. That's what she said. So I think uh, we better wrap it up. Yeah. Can't help it, yo. <laughs> I almost, office. I almost made myself a Jimmy Roosevelt, but I didn't want it clanking around. Oh, oh yeah, because the big, yeah. the big, yeah. it served in, a, in stemware, but with a big cue. With a big cue. I figured yeah. I would either hit the microphone, yes, or it would just like clink around the whole Jonathan time. Jonathan Cole would be like, "What the? Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like a, like a Frank Sinatra interview after a show. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, I think that's it. Before we wrap up, the usual shout outs. Check us out on social medias, Facebook, Relief and Resource Co., Instagram, Relief and Resource, Twitter, Relief underscore Resource. I think that's it. I think it is, too. Join yeah. us for our next episode where Ooh. we... believe it's space side. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're going back to Scotland. Just, you know, the breezy drams for your yes. summer, from your summer porch sip. Light and floral, if you will. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Enjoy, everybody. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers, guys. Welcome to WNIC Nice Radio. (laughs) It's all bunnies and recipes here. Nothing to get you excited. Conversationally vanilla radio for your drive day. Well, here's a song by Chicago. More butter for your muffin? Would you like me to butter your muffin? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 